Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhard, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. I am Michael Bormans. I am an uh, artist. I'm Luca Guadagnino, and I'm a film director. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. Let chance do its work and find the poetry in it and, and point it out. That's what an artist has to do, I think. And as long as you make your own work, you, you will be somehow original. I, I think originality and newness is uh, uh, just uh, an obscenity. And what really counts is the uh, way in which uh, uh, a subject can be, or an object uh, can be seen through the perspective of a subjectivity. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers, and musicians about what it means to make things today. Hey, everybody, it's Helen. I couldn't be more excited to start the year and to kick off our new season of Dialogues with a conversation with the Italian director, screenwriter, and producer, Luca Guadagnino, and the Belgian painter, Michel Boromans. Luca's most recent film, Bones and All, debuted to critical acclaim last fall, and it is only the last in a line of many hit films, from I Am Love to Call Me By Your Name. Mikel, too, is a master of his medium, plumbing the uncanny depths of oil painting through exquisitely rendered and mysterious characters. It's a very special pairing as both Luca and Mikel explore shared themes, light and atmosphere, horror and the gothic, intimacy and skin. I hope you enjoy it. Mikel, you you have no reason to remember this, but many years ago, I was a curator with a group of people from a museum, and we came to visit your studio. And um, I knew how much, I mean, I knew I was interested in your work as an artist. I had been following it for years. But I, I have always held this very special memory of that visit because of the lighting in your domestic space and in your studio, you did not have a single overhead light. And I loved you so much for that moment. I abhor overhead lighting. But you're correct. I'm very sensitive to light and I'm very, uh, very well aware of it. Of my uh, relationship to, to light is, is, is very important. Throughout my life, uh, I, I had this uh, sensitivity. Um, I think it comes from um, partly because uh, I was trained as a photographer and I've always been very keen on 19th century photography where photographers used daylight studios. So they arranged the daylight uh, uh, for the use in their studios uh, for, to make the uh, photographs. 
Um, so that was very fascinating. But you could see the, the, the negatives were very large and very, and the photographs were very sharp. And the light was very, very precise, much more precise than, than we see in contempt, in most of the contemporary photography. Natural light is, um, it's an element. It's much more than light. It, it's a, a big living thing that we have to deal with that uh, provides us life. So uh, light is much more than light. It's like air. It's, it's, I mean, we cannot live it without it. It's like we cannot live without time. We would not exist without time. Light is the same thing. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I have a very religious relationship, almost religious relationship to, towards this element of light because I work with it. So it's mm. very close to me. And, mm. uh, you know, I used to be a teacher and I was asked to be a, a painting professor in the Academy of Ghent. And I refused because the light conditions were not good for making paintings for the students. I said, oh, you have to find another building with other windows. Then I can do it, maybe. Well, we've jumped right in. First off, let me welcome you both, Luca and Mikal, to the, to the podcast. I'm really excited to be in conversation with both of you. I think your bodies of work have these wonderful points of contact that I wanted to to see if we could um, delve into a little bit. And I have a, a a list of questions for you. And my second question is actually about the role of light in both cinema and painting, and particularly the way both of you seem to exploit light. And Mikkel, your painting seems suffused with what I would call a kind of northern, moody Belgian light, a, a light I associate with the place that you live and work. And Luca, your films um, also use light. I mean, Call Me By My Name, you know, was, you know, light seemed to almost be a character, you know, uh, Bones and all, the shift to American light, this big kind of flat Midwestern light. And I wondered how you were thinking about it as you were uh, uh, filming your first film in America. Well, uh, uh, the, the deal with me and what, what, with my practice is that uh, there is a, an idea of light and an experience of light that comes to me as a person uh, and that I seek always, which is that for me, uh, the importance of light within a space and of a place is paramount. And, uh, um, and I, I look always forward to find the places where I can see and recognize the kind of light that I now uh, know it, it kind of corresponds to me and to what I feel and I want to feel. Probably because of growing up in Ethiopia, when I was very small, like from zero to six years old, that is my kind of primal scene in terms of how I dealt with light and that African light and that kind of Africa. Certainly must have had a very powerful impact, including the idea of interior and exterior and shielding yourself from the powerful light of the outside when you are inside. So uh, probably the aim is always to make sure that the stories that I tell they belong to the places I tell the story of, which means that they belong to the light of the places that I'm telling the story of. And you mentioned Call Me By Your Name, and that's a movie set in, in the uh, Pianura Padana in Lombardy. Uh, uh, and that 
part of Italy. It's very specific because it comes with the extreme softness and sweetness of the plains light that is also somehow mystified by what is in the air, what is in the air of the countryside. And I felt the story could only be told there, even though the, mo- the novel was set in Liguria against the Mediterranean Sea. And in fact, the idea of the contracts of the uh, skies and light from the Mediterranean Sea, to me, wasn't uh, really very much alluring in, in order to tell the story. But for Call Me By Your Name, and I, and I always try to look for the places that is the only place where I can tell the story I want to tell. Bigger splash. I could only make that movie if I were able to make it in Pantelleria, which is uh, the southest island of Italy, almost more Tunisian than Italian. Or Suspiria was basically an interior, a constant interior that could, should reflect the idea of the Berlin of the 70s that I grew up with in films, which is another kind of light I'm thinking of. For, for Bonds and All, uh, Midwest was the place that we wanted to tell the story of very, very much. Not the American landscape per se and gener- generally. I don't think that there exists such a thing. It exists the landscape of parts of America. And in that case, it, that's a movie about the landscape of the Midwest. It's not the landscape of America per se. Um, which comes with, the, on one hand, the, the vastness of it, but also the boring vastness of it. So that was a, a sort of uh, ambition to reflect on that in the way in which the, the movie was unrolling and, um, and the way in which the sky and the light in the sky was unrolling. And of course, then there is the interiors, the, the, the light that is artificial, the light that comes from uh, whatever is the colonization of the place from human beings, which is another complex topic. Mikel, I wonder how that lands for you. I mean, the idea that some of Lucas' films have actually been cited specifically, you know, to, to, to exploit the quality of light in a certain place. But it's my understanding from reading about you and your work that you have always painted in in Ghent, in Belgium, that, that you have not moved your practice around as Luca has. So, I mean, do you stay there in part for the conditions of light that are there? Uh, so far, uh, partly I, I do. I do. I'm very well aware of the quality of the light here and the low skies and, and the diffusion of the lights, uh, of the light by, by the clouds. Um, um, but, um, as I'm still a young painter, I, I'm painting for 20 years now or a bit longer. Um, I'm, I have changed studios already. So that's a big step. So I started with one studio. I have now three studios. I don't want to give up my old studios. I still use them, uh-huh. but, uh, um, I, I'm open uh, for experimenting now. Um, like, uh, this, um, uh, next year, I will be in uh, California working for the first time as an experiment. Oh, my goodness. Wow. This is yeah. almost like cognitive dissonance for me. Yeah, but I've been there before and, and the light is very bright and, and uh, it doesn't change much. So it's very hard light. And uh, it's a place that fascinates me and at the same time, same time repulses me. So and I wonder how this will affect my work. 
maybe it won't, maybe it will be a great deal. Maybe I cannot work. It, it, it's an experiment. But I'm also planning to do a couple of videos with someone over there. So I think I can work anywhere. Um, I just, in the beginning, I was a bit reluctant uh, to give up the atmosphere of the light here in Belgium. Because uh, in, in the low countries, uh, you see it in, in, in all the history of painting, you, you see the effect of the light, especially uh, uh, in, in landscapes and seascapes. Although all these paintings were made in studio, but there's two, there's the light in the painting and there's also the light in the studio, which also has an effect on the way the painting is executed or, or the way the light behaves in the painting. So these two uh, elements uh, work together in a way, or has to be have to be in some kind of a balance. I think that that's right, and I'm also I hear what Luca first said in my ear too that there's also the light that you carry with you from your first place, like this this experience of the Ethiopian light. You know this um, that your sense of color and space are being formed without you really knowing it. And they're being formed in relationship to the specificity of that light. And I think people kind of carry that with them in their, in their work. And yeah. in their all these early experiences uh, are, are very significant for, for late, later choices. Yeah. So one of the things I feel like painting and film share a lot of DNA. Um, both are sort of relentless in their pursuit of a certain kind of image. Uh, both create a world in which the viewer is asked to sort of suspend disbelief and, and enter into this world on this world's terms. Um, both have, uh, or can have a, a deeply, you know, narrative, uh, drive and both, it seems to me, have to create space that is, quote unquote, real enough for the viewer to enter. Of course, though, this space is completely artificially constructed. And my question for both of you is, how do you go about creating a space that, that's believable? Well, it's, um, in my case, it's really simple. I, I, um, I try to use, uh, elements in the painting that are very familiar for the viewer that are, um, um, known, uh, the, the, I mean, there's elements of beauty elements that are, uh, recognizable or, uh, familiar or, uh, that have interesting analogies with, with other paintings, uh, out of the history of painting. And then, uh, and that's a way to lure the, the viewer in. So do you view the, so the image that you see is attractive, you know, oh, whoa. Uh, and then, uh, but, and then later on it's, it, it's, it's also a trap in a way, uh, maybe I'm exaggerating, but, but, uh, because I, I tried then to present the images as, as an, as an autonomous, um, presence, uh, whereas the viewer is used to read the images, as a, an illustration of an idea of a concept or a story or whatever. And then in my case, it's, it's not, it's something on itself. 
and then the viewer gets irritated of, or confused. So first he gets uh, attracted and then he gets confused or irritated. Um, there's no way out then. Um, and that's a game I like to play, kind of. For me, I think it's about, uh, I think it's more about universality than believability somehow. Like, mm -hmm. I, I try to be very specific, as I said before. I mean, I always believe there is only one place where you can make a movie be. Uh, and not uh, that you can set a movie in a play, in, in generically anywhere. Uh, by the way, there is, we, 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 I, I am, I envy Michael because he's alone and he only responds to himself. But where I have to respond to so many, like, uh, uh, outside uh, uh, interruptions that are not really in any case and ways meaningful to the process. And one of the things is like sometimes in cinema, you have to choose to shoot a movie where the economics at stake are less impactful. And this means that you make uh, choices that eventually could make uh, the, the, the movie and a story and whatever you want to tell impersonal and generic. And I, I try mm -hmm. to avoid that as much as I can. I actually succeed in avoiding it completely. Never happened to me that I had to set a movie in a place that was di di directed by uh, economical reasons. I always wanted to shoot things where I thought it was important to shoot those things, like Pantelleria, as I said, or uh, like the Midwest for Bones and all. Right now I'm working on a, on a movie, uh, uh, it's an adaptation of a legendary book by William Barrows called Queer. Uh, it's his second novel, never published until 35 years later, and uh, set in Mexico City in Ecuador and in Panama City in the 50s, early 50s. But if you read it carefully, you understand that none of the places that he describes in the book are literal places for those places. This is like a really a Baroque, that, that deep dive into Baroque's mind and his unconscious and in his dealing with his uh, way of uh, approaching his own sexuality. And in fact, the only place that I think is uh, right for this um, translation into screen of the novel will be that we create everything from scratch and we do it on stage. So this is going to be my first movie where uh, the specificity of a place will come from a hopefully rigorous uh, uh, a representation of uh, the ideas behind the space and not the space per se. I think, uh, as uh, Michael just said, the familiar is super important. It comes with the idea of the unheimlich, no, the uncanny, where you have the familiar and but just slightly oblique, so that uh, something that is familiar suddenly becomes uncomfortable, and with the uncomfortability comes the need of balance, which of course creates the feeling of uncanny. Uh, uh, the familiar is super important so that you can twist with it, you know, like if in bonds and all, you have the familiar environment of the, of the Midwest and you have the familiar environment of uh, these houses. And then you have these people uh, covered with blood because they just had a meal. Um, and uh, um, I think if you use the familiar and then you, you, you kind of move on the side of it, I think it's the way in which you can hopefully uh, hit uh, an universal chord, but also a specific chord to make people uh, somehow tense, but also hopefully um, um, uh, positively emotional about it. So that sort of beautifully segues into another question I wanted to ask both of you, because you both are so adept at exploiting the 
specific characteristics of your medium. You know, Mikkel, I mean, oil paint is known for its relationship to human skin and this quality of light that it's able to capture. And Luca films are, you know, one of the things they do so well is create atmosphere and, and mood. And your films, you know, are just uh, exemplary in this regard. And, but both mediums also have these really long histories. And I'm always haunted by the art critic Douglas Crimp, who said, you know, underneath every picture, there is another picture. You know, that, that when we look at pictures or look at films, there's a kind of palimpsest, a constant excavation of the past in the thing you're looking at. And I wondered how you both navigated that relationship to the history of your medium as you must each also want to be making something new at a moment when new is a very, you know, it's hard to really think you could make something new in 2022, 23. So much has already been done. 100 year cinema, 500 years of oil painting. But what is your relationship to this, these deep histories you can mine as you're trying to make something, make your own work? I, I think originality and newness is uh, just uh, an obscenity. Uh, and what really counts is the point of view. And uh, what really counts is the uh, uh, way in which uh, uh, a subject can be, or an object uh, can be seen through the perspective of a subjectivity. I always like to think that when, when 1000 Night and One Night has been written, all the stories have been told and uh, all the, uh, all the images have been kind of like pulled. Right now in, in this preparation of queer uh, in my house, which is a big empty house right now, because I didn't have the time, not the full resources to completely dress it the way I want. And so I empty rooms after empty rooms. I asked my team to come and work here and we have uh, thousands of images and all these images are pictures from past, the a picture of the past of Barros, picture of the past of the places. But because the, the filter of time and the position, the, the gaze of people who see in these places is very important to us. And on the other hand, because you asked me about, you asked us about uh, the reference to our own uh, mean of expression, I am having as little as possible references to cinema. And I'm trying, I'm tending to kind of uh, have as less as possible references to cinema now that I work in the past few years. And I have a lot of reference to art. And I must mm. say, candidly, that I have a lot of reference to Michael Watt very, very much. Mm. I think in your work, there is a lot that we can uh, really investigate to understand uh, William Burroughs. I don't know why, but that's something we are really going for very deeply. And other mm, artwork that are very important to us. Um, I think cinema is always going to be for me here in the back of my mind and in front of my mind. And it's going to be a gesture. It's going to be a tone and inclination. Or possibly it's going to always be uh, the fact that uh, cinema is kind of bounce back to you what you want to see of yourself. So that's how I try to see cinema. And I always try to put that in motion when I actually make my own films. Yes, I, I agree. Um... Originality uh, is, is not something uh, one has to seek for. Uh, it's not interesting to do that. It all has to do with your own attitude towards things and the way you 
perceive things and, and, and your point of view indeed. Um, and also the openness of, of one individual who is always different from another one, uh, the openness to, um, find poetry and let accidents happen and, uh, let chance do its work and find the poetry in it and, and, and make, and make, and, and point it out. That's what an artist has to do, I think. And as long as you make your own work, you, you will be somehow original in a way. Mm. That's, that's my, that's, that's what I think. I, um, I really love both of your sense that originality is a kind of obscenity. This is so, this is such a great, um, way out of this kind of cornered conversation that people get, get into. Um, recently I was just, I was very fortunate. I was in Paris last week and I saw, uh, a performance by Tilda Swinton that reminded me of both of your works. Luca, obviously, you've worked with Swinton. Um, and it was a performance in which she was, her and a, 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 a fashion curator had gained access to the costumes of four of um, Pasolini's films. And the performance involved them taking them out of their kind of archival housing and then them not being exactly worn by Tilda Swinton, but kind of draped or affixed onto her body. And then there would be a moment where she, she would kind of for almost a, a fleeting moment, it was so effervescent and extraordinary due to, I think, her skills as an, uh, as an actress. She would inhabit the, the character from the film isolated in front of, you know, in this very bare set. And I was struck by two things. One was she kind of almost, it was, a, it was as if all the little figures in a Bruegel painting got pulled out and were isolated and you could see them very clearly. But the other thing was the amount of information in the garments, in the costume. That I don't think when you're in the sweep of watching the film, or sometimes when you are in, in the thrall of looking at a painting and trying to figure out what kind of reaction you're having to a painting, that you're necessarily aware of all of this information in the garment. Um, and I wondered, because costume is so important, Luca, in your films, and then Mikel, like one of the things that's very interesting about your paintings is what your figures are wearing, these strange hoods, capes. Um, you pay a, a great amount of attention to the, to the clothing that the, that the figures are wearing. And I wondered if you could each just talk a little bit about clothing, fashion, and how this is like light, yet another tool medium you know uh at your at your fingertips that you are both really exploiting what's possible what 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 can come about from the clothing on your characters well the clothing is is uh it can signify something and in my early work when i still used uh, found images as a basis for my paintings um Elements of this original clothing came true in the painting and, uh, 
I found that very disturbing. So I started uh, to make my own imagery, to, to invent my own images uh, from scratch. So I, I'm, I do photo sessions doing that. And even the clothes, uh, I, I tried to, to diminish the significance or the meaning of the clothing in my paintings. But by doing so, um, I, at the same time, I do the opposite. So it's just very con contradictory in a way. So I, I try to make them totally neutral and, and not referring to any era or time or profession or what, whatever. And then by trying, I refer to indi indirectly to previous periods, to, to the future, to science fiction. Uh, but, and that's where I reach my goal. Uh, it's not specified. It's not specified anymore. And, and that's, that was, uh, what I, was what I tried to, to, to get, uh, it's still research and, and, and a lot of try, try trial and error. And, but, um, but I'm getting there slowly. Can I ask you a follow-up question about that? Because Luca mentioned the word unheimlich, the uncanny and, and you're, paintings have an incredible quality of the uncanny. And I wonder if this desire on your part to have the clothing not signify actually ends up meaning that the garments have this more uncanny feeling because yeah. you both know them and don't know them simultaneously. Yeah. Well, I don't do it on pur purpose. I think it's within uh, my, my character to do that. Or to that this happens mm -hmm. in my work. So if I paint a portrait, it looks uncanny. What can <laughs> I, I, I cannot help. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I feel it intuitively, it's happening again, but, uh, but although when I make a painting, like a portrait and, and it looks too, uh, familiar or, or too familiar or, or too, uh, classical, I, f I find it utterly mm -hmm. uninteresting, you know? So, so, uh, so that's another way where, where I cannot, I, I, I don't have the choice to, to do what, than to right. do what I do. Luca, how about you? What is the, I mean, you know, I think the first film of yours I saw was, uh, I am love in which, you know, Tilda Swinton wearing Jill Sander is, I, I mean, there, this image is fused, the, the two of them together, you know, her in those clothing, in that clothing became sort of, uh, it was such a powerful way of moving that narrative forward. In truth, we were not looking for her to wear Jill Sander. I admired and I still admire very, very deeply the work of uh, Ralph Simmons. Uh, and, uh, and he was the creative director of, the, of, of, of Jill Sander at the time. And Marecki, the character played by Tilda, had to somehow uh, summarize in herself and in the looks in cinema the actual way in which people are dressed makes the character, not in real life, probably, but in cinema. So I, 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 I try to get a sort of uh, a balance between the idea of this kind of Milanese woman who is uh, invisible, but at the same time, he's, she's wrapped into the most perfection and the most exquisite, uh, detail-oriented approach to herself, probably to kind of... Uh, execute her job perfectly well. The job of being uh, a wife on a household like that. At the same time, we were looking at some kind of uh, um, 
feminine um, uh, idea of control, but at the same time that could express a, a sense of burning, uh, a lack of control inside of it, which is mostly Alfred Hitchcock uh, uh, women in his films. And uh, that's where we, me and the, and the costume designer, Antonella Canarozzi, um, I decided to go to Gilsander because I found this kind of like severity, but at the same time, this extreme irony that Raph was bringing to his wonderful creation. And we asked them, would you like to have a conversation about this concept we have for Emarecki? And that's how the, the, the wardrobe of Emarecki came about. None of the, of those garments are literal pieces coming from, coming from the actual shows. They are elaboration on the codified idea of femininity coming from the character, as I said, the reference to the past and, and particularly some, uh, let's say, blonde heroines in Hitchcock and uh, rough uh, codes. And that's how it came about. In general, it's about that. It's about uh, uh, trying to think of the character first and foremost and what the character should express through the way in which they are uh, dressed. And then, um, I mean, it's, I think it's important that, uh, uh, the way in which clothing appears on a screen are very direct and, and happen to tell you very precisely who you have in front. And then the performance is going to create all the ambiguity, but at the same time, I wish to disappear. There's a great uh, painting that Michael did recently, I saw it in person in New York called the witch in which this person is wearing an amazing uh, jumper. It's a jumper or a sweatshirt in, with stripes. And the, the idea of, 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 of a witch and, and that sweater, it's just amazing. And I am a bit envious of that intuition because I made a movie about witches and they were very grand in the way in which they were dressing up. And, and yet the, the, Michael's witch is so powerful. Yeah, Michael's witch is, your witch is very, almost more disturbing than any other witch because he's so... Because she, right, she, she looks like a very ordinary yes, character. so normal, like normcore, as we would say in the Broadmoor States. I mean, was, the, decept, the, the quality of um, deception seemed so high, and yet... That jumper, yeah. as Luca says, how, who could deceive anyone in a jumper so basic? So I think my, my last question for you both is what we often see, Mikhail, in your work is people who do not look at the viewer, people who are absorbed in an activity, who are imaged as being absorbed in their own interior world. And then Luca, you... You direct films that have one of my favorite qualities of cinema is actresses or actors who get a lot done without saying much, you know, who, where the linguistic is not the dominant thing that hangs over either of your projects, right? I don't believe in what people says. I believe in how I see people behave. I truly don't believe when someone says to me, I, I am this, I am that, I do this, I do that. I just... I have, I don't know, I grew up more and more not believing in the letter of what someone says, mm. the, which makes me a very old fashioned, uh, out of time 
Freudian for <laughs> So it's interesting to see the way in which people behaves and acts and moves and really like inhabits their own space and observe that and, and make a sort of like a secondary dialogue happening from that person. And in script, when it comes to film script, I do not believe in the actual dialogue. I'm lucky because I work with very fine writers who can write beautiful dialogue, but the actual dialogue, uh, which is the, the, the currency upon which uh, commercial cinema is built, which is all about delivering of uh, emotions, informations, interactions through the way in which people talk and the way and the words they used to say things, uh, which is a complete betrayal of what cinema has, uh, grew up grew up becoming and, and was meant to be. Uh, uh, I am very special about it. So I try to make sure that when I put the scene together with my actors, what they say is not exactly the most important thing. It's more about the behavior they encompass and, and how, um, what is, they don't say is, is more important. So do you work then with your actors on things like gesture or um, comportment more than dialogue? Well, I observe them and I try to make sure that there is a sort of double exposure between the way in which they behave as people uh, and the intuition they have as actor in the way in which they portray a gesture for the character. And sometimes you bend them, maybe you incline them to make something that goes more in the direction of what you think they do as people more than what they have the intuition of doing as actors. It's interesting because uh, it's about really like freedom of, of, of performance and control on performance. Mm. Mikel, how about you? Well, what you mentioned about, about uh, the closeness of, of my characters, my work is, uh, that's, I'm very conscious of that. I do, do this on purpose. It's, uh, it's like, I don't want to give too much, uh, emotional information. Uh, I want to keep it closed. I want to keep the lid on the box. Um, if you keep the lid on the box, um, you can be curious about what is in the box. And that's some lot of times better than, than opening the box. Um, so to speak, uh, on the other hand, um, another reason is, is to, uh, point out the, 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 the mere impossibility of communication. Um, because there's a lot of way we communicate, but there's a lot of way we cannot communicate. And uh, that's very frustrating. Um, that's, uh, also reason why I try to communicate with imagery. It's also very limited, but it's not so direct. It's not so literal. Uh, it, it's very implicit and, and more, it can be more poetical, poetical. Um, I think poetry is, is, a. Uh, also a way of communicating, which is more sophisticated in a way, you know, uh, mm. which is more emotional without being too exuberant. Mm. Uh, and it's very, it's a mirror in a way. So, uh, and that, that's also the beauty of it. You know, to really take it. You know, it's interesting listening to you talk about your own work. I can't help but realize that, um, you could have been describing Lucasfilm, so like desire is a box. It's better to have that box closed. Then you still have the desire, you know, I mean, 
it's really powerful. Curiosity is, is uh, curiosity is very important. Stay curious to, uh, for me, it's interesting to be like, uh, sometimes, uh, I know, that I, I know a lot of things I don't know. And, and, and I cultivate it sometimes because then I can be, uh, surprised like a child. I still feel, I still feel like a six year old or a nine year old, something like that. And so there's always things I really don't understand. But Luca, what age are you? I always, I, I too think people have a kind of internal age that is very at odds with their actual age. Luca, do you know what internal age you are? Are you eight? I think I am, uh, I'm, I'm shifting between uh, the moment in which uh, you become a sexual person, which I think is the uh, seven, eight. And uh, the moment in which you try to uh, tell to somebody that you love them and you have no idea, you don't have the ability or you don't feel the comfortability of doing so, so, you, so you're super shy, which is mm. like 16. So that's, I am in between these two and I'm still like that. And I'm, I'm not trying to find the poetic image. It's true that I am like that. I'm kind of a catastrophe when it comes to communicating this thing. But when it comes to uh, holding on to this uh, onto the procreative process, I think it's very important to be eight and yeah. 16. You said that as you're sort of in this process of constructing your new movie, Queer, um, based on the William Burroughs, that you were looking at Mikkel's images and thinking about them and, and that they were providing some kind of data for you. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit about what it is in the pictures that, that's feeding uh, your project. I think there is a, a, a powerful innocence in, in many of the, uh, perspectives in Michael's work. And, uh, at the same time, there is a beautiful sense of, uh, uh, loneliness that I think it's super important for queer. And uh, certainly the masterful sense of light and composition, it's, uh, a paramount source of inspiration for us. In the book, um, Lee, William Lee, the character who is a sort of doppelganger for William Burroughs, um, he, uh, like, he tries to get to be in contact with these other men, Allerton, and he doesn't succeed, even though at in moments they have contact. They can consider themselves having a moment of contact, like something that makes, like, the two becoming, in a way, finding the possibility of the communication. And at the end, when he loses him, he dreams. He dreams of being another person, the skip tracer, and roaming this kind of dreamlike place in which uh, uh, many of the places of Barrows are melt. St. Louis and uh, Tangier, Vienna, and Mexico City. And uh, there is a, an incredible array of uh, art from Michael about the idea of seeing a place that is miniaturized and and what is the relationship between the viewer of the place and the viewer of the view of the place that is in miniature? So that was a, a very powerful thing for us. And it still is. It's, I hope you don't think that we are going to steal from you, Michael. <laughs> you can steal from me. Um, I mean, um, it, it's the best compliment uh, one can have as an artist is that you inspire other people in other fields. Uh, literature and, and fashion and film, uh, for me, these are, uh, it's very nice. And even if, if someone steals uh, literally an idea, 
It means it's a good idea, you know? There I, is something yeah. wonderful because I didn't know your amazing fire from the sun uh, when I was shooting uh, Bones and All. And Bones and All is about uh, what is left behind more than what is happening there. It's all about this past and these children lost. They, they are lost to themselves. Like she doesn't know who she is. Mm -hmm. The father has to tell her. And he knows the, that the, he ha will be coming we were carrying forever the burden of having been a, a father killer, uh, the, the killer of his own father as, as a child. And then I saw this amazing uh, collection of paintings. And this, I cannot help by thinking that there is a sort of twin, twins hand in hand between these uh, series of paintings and bones and all. Uh, because I think the, 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 the powerful innocence of your children eating limbs of human flesh it reminds me of what I felt when I was discovering the world of Marilyn Lee and these cannibals mm. and uh, and their innocence in a way. Yes, and and this is, I, in your film it's also used as a very metaphorical because it, it refers to human condition uh, overall, and um, and that's why it's so confronting. I think it's not about the blood and the eating of, of limbs; it's about uh, who we are. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's confronting. I thought that was my idea. Thank you. It's Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. I love the, the organic interaction between your two bodies of work. I find it thrilling. So thank you. Thank you so much, Luca. Uh, thank nice you, Mika. Talk to you. Lovely uh, to talk to you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time.